1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books East European Studies, New Books Jewish Studies, New Books History, today with my guest, Professor Eliza Oblovatsky, who is the author of Revolution and Political Violence in Central Europe, The Deluge of 1919, published just out by Cambridge University Press 2021. As part of its series, Studies in the Social and Cultural History of Modern Warfare. Thank you so much, Eliza, for for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. This is very exciting.
1: So we have so much to talk about, and I I want to offer a brief introduction uh, of Professor um, Eliza Blavatsky. She is Associate Professor of History at Kenyon College in Ohio, where she has just completed her term as chair condolences of the history (laughs) department. (laughs) And the first book, Revolution and Political Violence in Central Europe, this is her first monograph. She's previously been the co-author of several books on the Jews of Chernovitz or Chernovtsi in Ukraine, published in German. Dr. Oblovatsky has published articles and chapters on gender revolution and anti-Semitism. And we'll talk about her current project uh, on refugees in Eastern Europe, East European Jewish refugees toward the end of our broadcast today. So I'd like to start with the first big question that I love to ask historians. Uh, It is somewhat autobiographical, but I would love to ask you what motivated you into this topic.
2: Well, as you can probably tell from reading my book, I am a believer that <laughs> autobiography is very important in understanding people's uh, beliefs and their uh, perceptions of the world. So I, um, I think that I, I, I just have found on multiple occasions, and you know, now with some time and reflection, I even feel like it might be a generational question of sort of going to college and graduate school in this immediate kind of post-1989 world of transition in Eastern Europe that got me probably interested in these questions about how people sort of live through these world historical transitions. Um, and I have always loved the study of the First World War and the early 20th century, and I love the the art and the music and the everything. So I I sort of was just inspired to kind of figure out what was it like to, you know, live through these revolutions and then their failure, and then to have to kind of live with the the question of like, what had happened? Like, what had you just experienced? Um, um, despite being in rural Ohio for my professional life, I, mm-hmm. I do love being in cities. And I, I, I find that cities in particular are places where there's just so such a rich um, field of interactions, and that people's lives are woven into all of the kind of structures and um, institutions in those urban spaces that it kind of um, this seemed to sort of lay itself in front of me. <laughs> this right. question of these failed nineteen nineteen revolutions.
1: And I was thinking a lot about your cities of choice, and I guess in in comparison and contrast to the boom in populations, really I would say up to the nineteen ten census and, and on the eve of World War. One. So, which are your cities, and how did you come to choose them?
2: Uh, that's a very good question. So, uh, as I said, they seem to present themselves, um, and then obviously the <laughs> the obviousness of that choice is uh, is. One with hindsight, right? Because, I mean, there was a attempted revolution in Finland and I don't speak Finnish and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. did not, right? Uh, and uh, for years, Volker Bergkamp kept insisting to me that the com- the best comparison was a triangle and that I really needed to include Vienna. And I love Vienna mm-hmm. and Vienna is an important sort of, sideshow in the story that i am telling and that people are fleeing to there and from there and 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 it makes a great comparison both in terms of thinking about the development of these two cities and then also in thinking about that post-war moment but i never felt that that three-legged stool of like a full-fledged comparison was going to work in part because in comparison to vienna Munich and Budapest are just so, so similar. Um, mm. And a comparison is very hard to structure to begin with. Um, you know, I actually spent uh, a couple of years in Berlin at the uh, Center for Comparative History under Jurgen Koka. And um, I also, you know, I, there are all these sort of theories about how to structure comparisons. And um, the two cities in the end that I had, you know, they're both events that are happening um, overlappingly. Simu- I mean, they're not entirely simultaneous, but they overlap and are simultaneous and they're sort of feeding into each other. And, um, and I just felt like focusing on those two places rather than including like Spartacus in Berlin or Vienna yeah. with, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that it just seemed that they were sort of, almost in one way, a, a singular phenomenon that, of course, needs to be unpacked into its local differences.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really like that hook that you start with—the tale of two cities and, and Dickens—and and I think, I think it works. Um, and it made me think a lot about the history of 1919. I, I mean, I am interested in 1919 as a kind of diplomatic moment in the Paris Peace Conference, what's happening out there in the world. I wonder what 1919 means to you as, as a centerpiece um, for your book. And, and in many of your chapter titles, you have the idea of, of world revolution, so or deluge in the title of the book, so what what is what is nineteen nineteen I guess for you? this is kind of like the master narrative master script question what what is what is the impact and what happened in nineteen nineteen
2: Well, I think you know again, to revert to autobiography, I apparently have been obsessed with nineteen nineteen for quite some time. Uh, my undergrad honors thesis was actually on. Um, the plebiscite in Upper Silesia. Uh, and I, at the time, um, n- not reading Polish and having undergrad-level German, but trying my best with some German sources, I, I ended up using lots of those Carnegie um peace documents, right? So all of these translated documents having to do with the Paris Peace Conference. And I read the foreign relations papers of the U.S. at the time. And I I think that just this idea that a whole, but I mean, you know, you can look at it from all of these perspectives, and people have framed it from all of these perspectives, right? Either um, with admiration for this like crowd of gray-haired men assembled in Paris who are going <laughs> to rewrite exactly. the maps, right? Your heroes, um, the, the, antiheroes, the, yeah, the experts, <laughs> um, you know, or uh, you know, with all of the criticisms that can come with that. Uh, and the other perspective from a kind of autobiographical framing is that um uh, while I was a graduate student at Columbia, um I took a lot of classes with Mark von Hagen and um was introduced to the really amazing scholarship on the Soviet Union. And I was just taken with, you know, sort of uh, in particular Sheila Fitzpatrick and and then you know people who followed after her in this whole school of kind of looking at people kind of this process of like making yourself soviet right um right and and that really struck me as ringing very true for all kinds of situations and it's funny because i was at a conference and i even invited sheila fitzpatrick to speak at kenyon uh she really was an inspiration to me and her work for my work and when i told her the first time that i found you know i thought what i was doing for 1919 in munich and budapest was you know like in her direction and she was like oh but those revolutions failed (laughs) 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 <laughs> of um, and 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 you know, basically, you know, with the argument essentially that like, you know, there weren't this kind of institutions with which people could, you know, create themselves. But I don't know, in a more like Ilfan Petrov kind of <laughs> twelve mm. chair sense. Mm. Like I feel like you don't really need institutions. Like people are writing these narratives for themselves all the time. Uh, and that it actually informs how the revolutions unfold and the counter-revolutions. So that was kind of the other direction that I was coming from, was this uh, like Soviet historiography about um, creating the, the new Soviet person and creating this new state. Uh, and so I felt like this idea of world revolution, both in the theoretical sense as Proposed by the Bolsheviks themselves, but also you know in in the sense of all of the debates afterwards on the, the, the failure of that project yeah. um, right, which tended to focus on you know failings of individual uh, communist leaders or the uh you know stabs in the back from the socialists, or the you know that it was a very political history, and I sort of wanted to do for it um, what had been done, I felt for the Soviet Union itself, which was to populate it with real people rather than just politicians and their
1: yeah. political
2: works and,
1: and and that Eliza is really my, my next question for you be, because as, as a as a high practicing social historian I, I love the fact that you're including so many sources from from memoirs and and introducing a lot of characters who have roles I, I would say that are, are somewhat ambivalent or maybe ambiguous would be the better word could you introduce through your sources to our, our listeners here at New Books Network some of the the characters and and how you seized upon the sources I and mean, what what you ended up doing in in combining this into both social and and, and urban and and I would say intersectional history as well
2: so um i went and perhaps ended up uh, embodying a warning that I had gotten from Victoria de Grazia to my first uh, proposals for dissertation fellowships, which is she's like, are you going to walk barefoot and ignorant into the archives? (laughs) Um, And I, uh, you know, I didn't actually have before I went to either Munich or Budapest, a good sense of what was available in the archives. Um, And I maybe went with some high hopes that (laughs) uh, were not, you know, as you know, uh, there are some amazing finds in the archive that you did not expect, but there also is, you know, a a kind of, sometimes it's hard to figure out um, how to work with what is available. And as you see in my book, One of the places where I found answers to the questions that I was looking for this question of sort of how did ordinary people behave, how did they explain their actions, how did they see their the things that happened to them and the things that they had done as fitting into a broader narrative the place where I found in the archives the richest information about that really was in terms of criminal justice and Mm. that had to do with these post-revolutionary trials uh, which in both cases was I would say the kind of richest single archival source that I was able to work with so in both places The defeat of the revolution led inevitably to all kinds of uh, arrests, criminal investigations, uh, and then eventually trials. Uh, The record for those post-revolutionary trials was very complete in Munich. Uh, There was a special court that was established, and the entire record of that court is available. In Budapest, the cases were handled by um, sort of I would say like juiced up versions of the previous courts. Uh, They were handled more quickly and they added more judges to certain kinds of cases.
1: Sorry, Eliza, can you just go back and and say the cases were handled?
2: So in Budapest, the cases were handled um, by, I almost would call it a kind of uh, enhanced or juiced up version of the normal criminal justice system. So there were, there Cases having to do with revolutionary activities were fast tracked, and there were additional judges added to make these um, sort of trios of judges for certain kinds of cases. Uh, Not all that, first of all, it was more dispersed, uh, and also not all of those cases were available. The appeals were more reliably available, and in the appeals files, I was able to see the original court cases. So, in both cities, that criminal justice aspect. And it was very interesting to me also, because the court itself, you know, as we all love to watch these like court procedurals, like the law carries with it all of these narrative forms and structures. And so seeing the ways in which these idealistic political narratives uh were sort of fit into this legal structure was also in and of itself quite interesting and i and i also really relished the fact that some you know some of the activities described in these court cases were really things that otherwise you have no record of right like Mm -hmm, disagreements disagreements over uh the political happenings in people's apartment courtyards or on train in train compartments and actually people turning other people in for things they said on trains seems to have been a common theme in both in both cities that and, and I wonder if also that kind of enforced intimacy of a train compartment, you might have quite deep conversations depending on the length of the train ride. But in the end, you don't really know the person and you don't have a lot invested in right. in them. And so maybe those are people who are pretty well <laughs> willing to turn you in
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and actually, that that was a big question that I had is is reading um, in reading your chapters about the the trials. I mean, to our listeners also, I should say you have six chapters. Um, So the first chapter is Central European Roots of Revolution. The second is World War and World Revolution. The third is I love this chapter on rumor and terror, revolutionary script and political violence. The fourth is Revolution on Trial. The fifth is Seeing Red. Another chapter, I Love Dangerous Women and Jewish Bolshevism. And the sixth, Remembering the World Revolution, followed by, by Conclusion. So I, I really wanted to ask you a lot of questions about the the trials, because, I mean, how do you then go about identifying people politically? There's obviously this you know sort of in in insane obsession in both hungary and and in in munich at this time with people who who might be deviant or anarchist or communist or communist jewish or whatever are you able you know despite not being able to identify a lot of the characters to sort of read between the lines is that important to you and how did how did you go about doing that
2: yeah i i was uh I that was sort of one of the questions that I had because the 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 question of how people come to the attention of the authorities is obviously the beginning of this criminal justice narrative. So some people are obviously known quantities, right? They they were figures in these governments or institutions or they were very public figures who wrote in publicly in support of uh the revolutionary governments. And then there were people who were obviously Obvious in not to us as historians, but obvious at the time, because they were on lists they had exactly. right they yeah. had picked up arms <laughs> to participate in the Red Army, or they had uh you know participated in some other way for which the new counter revolutionary authorities had a written record. One of the very interesting things I found in looking through people's police files um and so the police are you know in some ways the beginning of the criminal justice. Story, and in both places also the there was um, the military sort of served that policing function initially um, much more so in Munich, where there was this kind of official sort of military occupation uh, followed by turning over to civil authorities but um, this police function of sort of receiving denunciations and investigating some of these claims and one very interesting thing I found which I, I, I sort of touch on in various places in particular in the um, in in the chapters that you were highlighting, the chapter on the terror, um, because that relies a lot on court cases for some of my information about it. Uh, and then the chapter on the cases themselves. And then chapter five, as you talked about, the one that where I focus in on gender and race, uh, the that chapter also relies a lot on mostly sort of analyzing these court cases. And one interesting thing which sort of spans all three is that in both places, you know, the the uncertainty is just highlighted by the fact that there were so many cases of mistaken identity. Um, yeah, it's a great point. That a lot of people have, you know, as they do here, and we know from the internet, right? I mean, you try and sign up for an email address and like every, all of the things, all of the versions of your name are taken, right? So lots of people have the same or very similar names um, and in in this era, that really was sort of all the information that they had. And so there's there's all kinds of crazy cases where someone comes up for court case over acts that they did commit or are accused of committing, um, but they only came to the attention of the authorities, not because of what they had done, but because they shared a name with someone famous. So I use in my uh, discussion of one of the major acts of um, red terror that was used, uh, the the so-called murder of uh, hostages in Munich. And that case against the people who killed those so-called hostages, who killed these prisoners that had been taken by the red um, government, that court case, um, you know, pulled in all kinds of information. And I use that one baker's assistant who just, you know, right. he's, right. he's right. pulled in basically because he shares a name with the, the guy who is accused of, of, um, you know, ordering the shooting at the, at the gymnasium. So there's a lot of people also in Hungary. There are several people who were either pulled in by the reds for these, um, uh, revolutionary courts, uh, or who were pulled in afterwards, um, because of confusion over their last names. Um, you know, and mm-hmm. and I think that 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 sort of shows a little bit just both the, you know, we sort of want to know like what really happened. But of course, the authorities were working in kind of a fog, and they did not have a lot of they didn't have GPS tracking on people's smartphones. And um they really were just trying to figure out you know, is this the Zydel who we're looking for? Yeah, and it's a horrible co-
1: coincidence then for, for people who, who are actually innocent, right? And then have, have to face this revolutionary justice or counter-revolutionary right. justice after, after the fact.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: I, I wonder if I could ask you about the, the, um, contextualization of feminism and anti-feminism in the book. I, I think this is such an important gender analysis of revolution and, and counter-revolution, but it's told in a very intimate way where you're getting, as, as I think Maureen Healy does and, and Nancy Wingfield as well, I mean, into intimate histories and stories of, of violence. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk about that. And, and I, I think the anti-feminist, um, Sort of justice or meeting out of justice eventually, of course, becomes part of the counter-revolutionary regime. But I mean, how do you how do you structure the stories and, and micro stories in the book?
2: So, you know, it, it is true that that counter-revolutionary narrative becomes so much more dominant, uh, both in those societies, um, but also you know, in my own work, I, I, I actually, like, one of the reasons I am, uh, enjoying my turn now to this refugee question is, I'm sort of tired of these <laughs> right-wingers <laughs> dominating yeah. my field of vision with all of their, <laughs> with all of their fantasies in the, in that era. Um, I think that My thought was, as I said, you know, I just had this idea of trying to figure out, like, how revolution made people rethink their lives, you know, and I always, when I'm teaching either Russian and Soviet history or when I'm teaching just the, like, modern Europe survey, I love to have students read, like, August Babel or Alexandra Kollontai, you know, all of these kind of, like, Communist fantasies and socialist fantasies of how communism will solve these inequalities and struggles of daily life, right? And, And in particular, how it will rewrite the role of women in society we will no longer have to cook our meals in individual mm-hmm. kitchens and we won't be tied to these repressive structures. And, you know, and, and, and then the terror that, that that vision really seems to have been one of these places where the terror of revolution really set in. And that's, you know, from the French Revolution on, this idea that, revolution was going to tear apart the cloth of society, that it was going to rip apart the family and, uh, you know, that it was unnatural. And women obviously are the center of this terror of revolutions being unnatural, that women mm-hmm. might behave in unnatural ways or they might, you know, the fa- they might no longer produce families. And, uh and, and, and I was interested in both sides of that, <laughs> in trying yeah. to also get a sense of like, what was it like to be a young woman in this moment where maybe the world was going to get rewritten, right? Uh, maybe you don't have to step into those same roles. Uh, and the best source that I found, it was really wonderful the, that um, the... Um, Ketzler, Gabriella Ketzler, is the mother, and then um, one of her foster children, she had run a children's home uh, outside of Munich, uh, and one of her now adult but uh, foster children, um, uh, Hilda Kramer, was also tried in these post-revolutionary trials. And the Ketzler had two other adult daughters who were living in other parts of Germany and experiencing the revolution in Berlin and in Kiel. And they were um, mm-hmm. they knew lots of famous revolution. They are their own interesting story. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the That family needs a book written about them. But um, the they, the police had seized all of their correspondence. <laughs> and these letters were really just amazing. So in, mm-hmm. in this case, I really had, you know, from all of these different geographic locations and um, generational perspectives, this sort of sense of how people were writing and acting in this revolutionary way, you know, that you would wear the reform dress and you would cut your hair in a particular way and you would feel yourself to be part of this world historical change, right? So it's Mm -hmm. not just going to a protest and the kind of more obvious politics around that, but also the body politics and the gender politics of this kind of self-presentation as a revolutionary woman and, and how people perceived that. And in the case of Munich also, you know, uh, both Gabriella Ketzler, the mother in the family, and then this um, foster daughter, Hilda Kramer, uh, you know, they were just the, these They were not accused really of anything substantial. Uh, And yet the trials were in the newspapers so prominently, and they were treated with so little respect across the political gamut of newspapers, right? Mm -hmm. That they were treated as sort of silly and... um, Peripheral. Now, I don't know them. I don't know how silly they were, right? But like the the, the it it was so um, it, it was out of such a kind of stereotypical disdain for women's political activities that this sort of reportage of their trials was presented that it made me also there want to kind of dig in and figure out like why i mean why why yeah. are people so concerned with these two minor cases and also why once they have become concerned do they uh write about this and these women in this really derogatory way um so that you know particular case is one that i go into a lot in chapter 5 just because i feel like it is so revelatory. And Mm -hmm. then I tried also, you know, again, without necessarily the exact matching sources for both cities, you know, it's the comparison dilemma. um, I tried to then just use court cases that I found of women where unfortunately I didn't have that same kind of matching police file of all their correspondence, but to kind of get a little bit of a sense of that in the Hungarian case as well and in the hungarian case obviously the the other source is the Memoir by the right-wing woman uh, Cecile Tournai. Yeah, Cecile
1: Tournai. Yeah. yeah. I was who going is to ask you a, about that.
0: Could you, could who you is a a-
2: very fascinating character in her own right and she also deserves her own book although I will not be writing it. I have read enough. Of her.
0: Could
1: could you could you tell, could you tell our listeners who she is? Uh, I mean I'm I'm very, you know, fascinated by her conservatism obviously but yeah, like so how she, how she explains away violence so
2: she's an interesting figure because generationally i mean she is very much um you know of a older generation she she was already uh, in the first world war and in 1919 she was already a um venerable figure in the sort of literary and cultural world of hungary uh she had written some well-received sort of Romantic nationalist kinds of novels, um, you know kind of romanticizing the peasantry and romanticizing, which is very important for the Hungarian case, the relationship between uh, non um, hungarian speaking peasants and their hungarian speaking noble <laughs> landlords and um, and and she was you know friends with sort of all of the powers that be, which um, there, you know, redounds to her benefit in all kinds of ways. Uh, But she, um, she was somebody who um, uh, was a concern. I mean, she came entirely out of these circles, but she wrote a memoir um, that sort of used her position in Budapest uh over the course of this revolutionary spring and summer of 1919 uh, to justify uh, beliefs which she had clearly held beforehand, which is one of sort of my main uh, sort of conclusions in some ways about 1919, that it's a story that people at the time and historians since then have often told as being. You know, Cecile Tormai lived in Budapest through this revolutionary regime, and it created in her this disgust for Jewish internationalist revolutionaries, but she came into the whole experience with a disgust for Jews, revolutionary politics. Right. So she was already, that was her perspective at the beginning of the revolution. And I mean, similarly, right. Hitler famously was in Munich in 1919. And, you know, <laughs> I don't think that it's the 1919 <laughs> experience that <laughs> turned yeah. in it. Right. Um, so uh, it is the, the, you know, that, the, the events are experienced through the framework that people already bring to them, what they already think about revolution, what they already think about the place of Jews in society, what they already think about the place of women in society. But Tormai was very interesting because she really was the most prominent um, female intellectual in those counter revolutionary circles. And her memoir became. Um, quite popular, translated by various um, similarly anti-Semitic, <laughs> anti-revolutionary political figures in into English and into you know all kinds of languages. It has a uh, disturbing afterlife on the internet. <laughs> if you, it does. It if does. you, I mean, every time I Google her or her book, it, it I, it's like a new mix of surprising yeah. and disturbing places that it appears, but um, it it really, um, you know, it, her status as a survivor of this political ordeal means that this memoir that she wrote has been used to justify really all kinds of um, quite terrible uh, politics. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and 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 I guess you know Eliza this is sort of my lead in to the bigger questions from your book I mean you raise so many interesting questions for future historians and in the historiography that I, I think still should be written um, I think about Tormai just to sort of leave this off and all of the prepossessions that she had before the war and certainly she thought of women as you know dangerous and and whatever all of these other, ways of describing them as politically dangerous or degenerate and, and that sort of thing. And it survived very much in in the interwar Hungarian period. So I guess from your book now leading into numbers about the red and white terror, the the work of Bela Bodo and, and others who, who've been thinking about the scripting and, and narratives, what, what would you say drawing from your chapters and into your conclusion would be the historiographical items on the agenda what what do you think historians can draw um not just from from memoirs which have been published but maybe from police files um which haven't been as quite as accessible
2: hmm so i mean i i really feel like um there is, there is just a lot more work to be done on these smaller kind of revolutionary moments. Um, and I, I think in general, I mean, over the period in which I've been working on this, which now is a really long time, uh, there has been a lot of, Improvement and enrichment, particularly in the field of Hungarian history with um, more social historians, more historians who um, are interested in figuring out some of these questions. And I, I, you know, I see in your list of podcasts that you have done that there's, wow. you know, you've interviewed some of these people who have written really um books about Hungary that didn't exist when I started my project um, and I think that there, there there is a lot of work being done about um, you know uh, Judith Horvath had just written a book about you know basically these Tormai kinds of people right these questions of sort of conservative fem- female intellectual figures um, there has been uh you know anita kuramai actually if anyone it's is interested book. on the dirt <laughs> if you're if you're interested on the dirt on cecile tormai uh you know she has published a article about some of her uh the yeah. scandals around her own uh, around tormai's um personal life which interestingly i mean the main takeaway there is that like neither at the time nor in really sort of nationalist perspectives in Hungary today, does anyone seem to begrudge Tormai that she was a lesbian? So um, for all, for all of, (laughs) for all of the sort of scandals and her own really um, horrible writing about people, women and their sexuality. uh, So it, there, I, I, I guess I'm sort of more of an optimist in that I feel like a lot of the work is now being done. I mean, I think in the German case, um, there is still always this uh, thing where anytime I've told somebody I'm working on this revolution in Munich in 1919, you know, the long shadow of the Spartacus is, I is didn't so, want to ask. It's so <laughs> huge. And, you know, I, know. I, I find myself you know, on like an airplane or something saying, well, you know, I mean, that never even took, I'm like Sheila Fitzpatrick was to me. Those revolutions didn't even succeed. I'm like, that wasn't even a revolution. It was an attempted revolution, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I do think that a more, maybe less Berlin focused history of, um, of the, end of the First World War or even of the First World War, I mean, the First World War has engendered a, a pretty rich scholarship, and there have been a lot of people who've done sort of more local histories or used a particular non-Berlin location as the main focus for larger claims about the First World War. But I I, I do think that in, in, you know, I mean, these kinds of... Um, particularist claims and a kind of Bavarian nationalism maybe does still need to be taken a little more seriously, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and all of this fantasy world, some of which was kind of tied to Bavarian particularism, but, you know, this sort of maybe, you know, reimagining Germany, basically. could we get a Habsburg on the Bavarian throne? You know, I mean, these kind of crazy monarchist schemes that existed. And there has been some scholarship on the kind of monarchist schemes and certainly on the Habsburg attempts at restoration in Hungary. But, um, you know, that imaginary is one that I feel like could also be a book, right? Like this kind of, where would this Germany, this sort of, Monarchist or right-wing Germany be centered, and how would it be right? Um, mm-hmm. And and that I think is a really interesting question, particularly since you know even in my book, right, these stereotypes about the Prussians really shape a lot of our teaching of early twentieth-century Germany.
1: Mm-hmm. And and I I guess you know I'm I'm really interested in how you write the chapter on remembering the World Revolution because the remembering in in bavaria is, is not always the same as budapest and correct me if i'm wrong because you've got you know not only luxembourg coloring the german scenarios you also have the spd legacy right the social mm-hmm. democrats in in munich and that's a very different context if you do a compare a contrast among your cities or even towns if you get to the town level right with with budapest and the horthy regime and everything that becomes, you know, anti-com- anti-communist anti and then anti-Semitic with the numerous clauses. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it, I, I wonder if you, you know, see that sort of line of inquiry where you're actually comparing very different political environments and yet many of the same kind of gido Komuna Stereotypes and, and anti-feminist stereotypes, not to mention homophobic stereotypes, are mm-hmm. still are still shared across that political spectrum. This is more of a comment um, than than a question.
2: Yeah, okay. I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I that I would say that is one of my takeaways, and that is why, in terms of thinking about the comparison and what to have in and what to have out, I I feel like for me the one of the strengths of the book is that the cities are quite different, and obviously they they have these very different relationships to the whole, right? Hungary was part of a whole of the Habsburg monarchy, but then exactly at the revolutionary moment becomes its own whole, whereas Munich was part of a German imperial whole, and then during the revolution, tried to see what it could do. Otherwise, and then, uh, and then became uh, part of the Weimar whole, um, and then eventually the Nazi whole. Which is, you know, the other thing about a difference in the historiography and even the remembering is that obviously, the the Nazi takeover in Germany just shapes everyone from that mm-hmm. moment their perspective on these 1919 events, right? That it's put into a causal, every instance of antisemitism is put into a narrative about Nazism and, you know, and, and one of the, right. you know, arguments I make in the book is that, you know, I mean, in 1919, the, the counter-revolutionary right-wing antisemitism was, was so much more, um, vehement and violent and real in the lives of Jews in Hungary than in, um, than in Germany anywhere, um, you know, Mm -hmm. and my uh, graduate school colleague, Michael Miller, has been doing a bunch of research on these 1919, you know, beginning in some ways with these kind of educational Jewish refugees who fled after the um, numerous clauses law, which limited Jewish enrollment in the um, universities in Hungary and is considered sort of the first uh, anti-Semitic legislation of that interwar period. Um, and he, you know, he has also been sort of looking at these communities then of these Hungarian Jews in Vienna and in Berlin, um, trying to also sort of look at them as these sort of historical communities. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I think that uh, looking at them together, I guess one of the things that that does for me is that they they in reinforce each other, so that and that's why I use so often throughout the book this word or phrase Central Europe or Central Europeans because the thing that I think about the two cities is that their experiences are atypical. Uh, You know, Mm. in in this era, they had more of this 1919 uncertainty and upheaval, but they are fairly typical in the region. Right. And that. Right. um, And that, you know, the kind of particularly um, among those kind of writing classes, (laughs) uh, the letter writers, the diarists, that they really shared a kind of central European, often German speaking, um, cultural world. Um, both on the left and on the right, um, and and I and I think that they can, you know, be used together in that way rather than just comparing to see the differences.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and and so you mentioned now you're turning toward life stories and and also toward the East European Jewish refugee experience during and, and I think after the First World War. I wonder if you might say a few words um, to our listeners here at New Books Network about. The history of political violence and how you're again reconsidering the 20th century, perhaps, and and, and trying to get through sources and in, into these larger historical questions about Central Europe.
2: Yeah, I guess I mean the story of these refugees is one that is also in this book, uh, mostly because they became a real focus for nationalists and anti-Semites all over the region, uh, in Budapest, uh, in Munich, and even more so in Vienna, where the largest population of these um, First World War refugees had settled, and it was a group of people who tended to be called Galicians, uh, Galicianer. Uh, They were from Galicia, but also some from Bukovina. It was essentially um, not by any modern Uh, international law definition of refugee, but that was the term that people mostly used, Uh, internally displaced people from the eastern edges of the Habsburg monarchy, areas that were under Russian occupation during the First World War, or even places where the Russian army didn't reach to occupy, but the war had arrived, or there was fear of the Russians arriving. And so um, largely Jewish civilians fled from sort of the east of the monarchy to the west of the monarchy and to many of the big cities. So also in Prague and elsewhere, there were populations of these refugees. And at the end of the war, as your map makers were working, Mm. um, you know, this was one of these groups who really caused a lot of issues because the question was um, many places that had been dealing with these large populations of refugees, only some of whom had really sort of integrated into their places of refuge, uh, wanted to, uh, and language ranging from, you know, repatriate, deport, right, that these people should go back. Um, But they really raised this question of um, to where? (laughs) Um, Yeah right? Uh, where should they go back to? Where, where would they be obviously citizens of in this new, um, world of nation states? Um, could they even go back, um, to the places that they had left, uh, you know, where property had been destroyed or damaged? Um, you know, and I was on a panel at AC's, um, a couple of years ago with, uh, Keeley Stetter, um, Halstead, who was working on, you know, she and other people working on these kind of border areas of Poland, which obviously also were all uh, in, it was a different uncertainty than my 1919 uncertainty, but it was similar in the sense of people were trying to write different stories, different foundational stories for these interwar states. What kind of a state is Poland? Who is a member of this Polish state? Um, where are the borders of this state? And those are aspects of the 1919 story in both Hungary and Germany, really, in Bavaria mm-hmm. and in, right? Um, and so I was very interested in these people who were sort of emblematic of that in that they were physically displaced, but also um, outside of a lot of these narratives that were being created or often were the target of those narratives that were being created. And I really, my my goal is always to try and like find out, you know, what people themselves thought, not what all the newspapers were writing about them. And I had had the privilege in the 1990s of doing a series of interviews with colleagues in Germany um, on, and I'm going to say it as a kind of title, Holocaust survivors in Chernovitz, uh, mm-hmm. And some of those people who we identified and found and interviewed in this sort of life historical category of Holocaust survivor were people who also had survived all kinds of other things. Right. I mean, they had, they had lived through the whole 20th century, including a couple of the women we interviewed in our first round of interviews in Chernovitz, they had been born as subjects of the Habsburg emperor, you know, and, um, and, and they had experienced the First World War. Either they, with their families, or certainly parts of their families, had been refu- refugees, Jewish refugees, often in Vienna, at the time. And I just thought that you know we we don't really have in the archives or in our kind of historiography this category of First World War refugees, uh, in part because the Second World War that affected much of the same population was obviously so much more horrible. But I thought, you know, if I found these stories of the First World War by talking to, in quotes, Holocaust survivors, that there must be more of those experiences in some of these um, collections of life stories of Holocaust survivors that, you know, organizations like the Spielberg Foundation or the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum have collected, so I have been trying to uh Great. you know kind of use those sources as a way of trying to uncover this and it is in part a generational experience obviously um but this this um overlapping experience of being a refugee and the way yeah. that people's the 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 sort of experience of the first world war affected their behavior during the Second World War, their options, their thoughts, their uh, kind of life identity. Um, You know, if they drew conclusions about the position of Jews in the diaspora, if they drew conclusions about the Russians or the Germans as, you know, sort of stereotyped groups, or if they, you know, how they kind of wrote that story of their lives. And, And with my you know, primary focus being on sort of seeing how the First World War fit into those other narratives.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so interested listening to you, and, and we're re- we're going to be running out of time. But I, I love to ask Galician's questions about bureaucracy and how they <laughs> how they remember the illogic and the injustice of of the bureaucracy in places like interwar Poland, because of of course you know have the stories of people who remain who kind of rationalize it and then tell the story of justice. And for many people who left and who've been displaced and have faced multiple personal traumas, there's nothing logical at all about it. And that was why they left. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that tension, you know, throughout the 20th century. And I think actually, you know, you're covering it um, in your book so well, because what seems normal, normalizatia, is actually not normal at, at all. Um, And that leads me to my last 60 second question for you. If you, you know, having mentioned some other authors already, can you recommend maybe two or three that our listeners might read?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you also mentioned some of the ones that I uh, love. So I I, I, for the exact same reasons that you said works like, excuse me, Maureen Healy's book on vienna during the first world war which i almost feel like you know if you want the third leg of my comparison you can read read her book um at least for the wartime part of it and some of the post-war i mean she also has some wonderful articles about the returning soldiers and the kind of civilizing of the soldiers through the re you know re-tailoring of their uniforms into work clothes and and um and the, you know, a lot of the gender aspects. So I, I do feel like that provides kind of the Vienna perspective. Um, and I I um, I really feel, I, I do still feel very inspired by scholarship on the Soviet Union. And another person whose work really inspires me and who is a wonderful historian is Lisa kirschenbaum mm. And I really love her book about the siege of Leningrad, which again is one of these kind of, uh, you know it 's this little like gemstone moment that 's been kind of polished into a a particular narrative, and she really tries to unpick it and see like not to just say here 's the monumental Soviet story of heroism, and here 's the you know the critique of that monumental story of heroism as being empty or Uh, false, but to try and understand like the the real day-to-day heroism of these people who lived through this terrible experience and to get a sense of how they understood their own actions. You know, how do you get up in the morning and, and, you know, for these librarians, these incredibly brave librarians, she describes, But yes. right? Like, how do you get up in the morning and continue to go to your job at the library in these extreme circumstances? And I, I think, you know, from reading her book and, you know, from the people that I study that the stories that we tell ourselves about our place in history are how we do those things. It's yeah. how people get up in the morning and do terrible things. It's how people get up in the morning and do heroic things. It's how, that that the, I love the that. way yeah. that you see yourself <laughs> fitting into the big picture is, you know, life narrative. Autobiography is everything, I guess. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
1: I, I think, I think Eliza, actually, that's like the perfect place to stop. It's, it's also the mantra for a department chair, how we get up and do terrible things every day. <laughs> right, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> thank you so much for joining me here in conversation on New Books Network. We have been joined today by historian Eliza Oblovatsky, and I want to plug her book here. The book is called Revolution and Political Violence in Central Europe the Deluge of 1919, just out, published by Cambridge University Press 2021. Congratulations, Eliza. And again, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: And I'm your host here at New Books Network, Stephen Siegel. Until next time.